Hello, and welcome to this episode of Careful Thinking, a new podcast exploring ideas about care. I'm Martin Robb, and I'm the host of the podcast. Careful Thinking is inspired by a belief that thinking critically about care can both deepen our understanding and improve the day-to-day practice and experience of care. In each episode, you'll hear an in-depth conversation with a researcher, writer, or practitioner at the cutting edge of current thinking about care. My guest for this episode is Petter Urban. Petter is a senior researcher at the Institute of Philosophy of the Czech Academy of Sciences in Prague. He's been the principal investigator and coordinator of several national and international research projects in the fields of continental philosophy, the political theory of care and administrative ethics. And he's published books and journal articles on a wide variety of topics, impressively in Czech, German and English. Perhaps most relevant to the concerns of this podcast have been firstly Petter's co-edited book on care ethics, democratic citizenship and the state, which was published in 2020. Also a number of papers proposing a link between care ethics and the theory of inactivism, as well as articles connecting ideas of care with theories about play. And finally, papers on the relevance of the philosophy of Edith Stein for care ethics. Petter's most recent book, Social Cohesion Contested, Living Together Beyond the Neoliberal Regime, which he co-wrote with Dan Swain, was published by Roman and Littlefield in January this year. And I'll put links to Petter's publications in the show notes for this episode. I first came across Petter's work a few years ago in the course of my research on gender and care, when I was just beginning to be interested in care ethics. As an admirer of the philosopher Edith Stein, I was interested to learn that Petter had written about the connections between her ideas and those of feminist care ethicists. Petter and I corresponded via email, and we then met in person at the inaugural conference of the Care Ethics Research Consortium in Portland, Oregon in 2018. Our conversation on that occasion was quite brief, so I'm really pleased to have this opportunity to talk with Petter at greater length, not just about his work on Stein, but also about his broader involvement in the field of care ethics. So Petter, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Martin, and thanks for having me. So to start off our conversation, I wonder if you could tell us something about your current role at the Institute of Philosophy in Prague. What does it involve and what have you been working on most recently? So currently, uh, my role is the project coordinator of uh, a Horizon Europe funded uh, project, which we uh, which we been awarded um, uh, last year. And this is a five years project uh, which aims to establish a center for uh, environmental and technology ethics in Prague. And uh, I have the pleasure to collaborate with uh, with Mark Kokelberg, uh, who is a Belgian philosopher based at uh, the University in Vienna. Uh, and uh, Mark is our ERA chair holder. So he's someone who is uh, mentoring the, the entire project and helping us with uh, establishing the center. Uh, and um, besides this, uh, I'm the deputy head of uh, Department of Applied Philosophy and Ethics, which was established uh, in 2022 uh, as a kind of uh, 
aim of the Institute of Philosophy of Czech Academy of Sciences to focus more on uh, research and philosophy, uh, which is which has some uh, societal impact and where we can do things that are uh, visible and uh, that have some uh, impact for the broader uh, audience and public in the Czech Republic and internationally. Thanks. You obviously got a very wide range of philosophical interests, so that, that's really interesting. But focusing now on your interest in care ethics, um, I wonder if you could say something about how you became interested in care ethics in the first place, and how your academic career led you to that interest in theory okay. of care. Yeah. Uh, so I, I actually started as uh, someone interested in continental philosophy and my PhD uh, research was focused on uh, the, the founder of the phenom of phenomenological philosophy, Edmund Husserl, the German philosopher, uh, and I wrote my PhD on uh, philosophy of language in, in his early thought. Uh, and this was also my, my first book. Um, and as I studied uh, the phenomenological tradition uh, more and more, so I was uh, more interested in uh, phenomenology of intersubjectivity. So topics such as uh, empathy, uh, intercorporeality, affectivity or intra-animality. And this was also related uh, to my interest in uh, the difference between uh, human and non-human animals. Uh, and this uh, was moment where my uh, research became more involved in uh, the field of ethics. Uh, and I taught uh, ethics and applied ethics uh, uh, at uh, the University of South Bohemia here in the Czech Republic. Uh, so I was wondering, so how is, uh, uh, how is it possible to, um, uh, to build uh, some ethical uh, ethical thinking on the grounds of phenomenology of intersubjectivity and intra-animality. Uh, and this was the moment where I came across uh, uh, feminist interpretations of uh, especially uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty's philosophy, so this French uh, phenomenologist. And uh, I realized that there is a wonderful book out there, uh, which was uh, Maurice Hemington's uh, Embodied Care, uh, Jane Addams, Maurice Merleau-Ponty and Feminist Ethics, which uh, is actually now exactly 20 years ago when it was published. Uh, and this book is uh, a book which uh, is doing what I was trying to do, which is combining a phenomenology of intersubjectivity and uh, uh, these feminist interpretations and uh, that was my entry point to uh, care ethics uh, and then uh, I was uh, working on a Czech translation uh, of uh, Virginia Held's uh, The Ethics of Care uh, which uh, was actually the first book uh, in Czech language uh, available uh, introducing into this current of uh, contemporary moral philosophy and uh, I also had a chance to uh, collaborate with Virginia Held uh, during my uh, Fulbright uh, scholarship uh, at the Graduate Center CUNY uh, in New York. And uh, this was, uh, this was a kind of transformative experience for me because Virginia Held uh, was promoting strongly uh, the political global dimension of care ethics. So going beyond uh, the 
the original uh, the original part of care ethics where it was more focused on a kind of dyadic personal um, issues and uh, I was let into this political theory of care thinking and it was also the reason that I was interested in organizing a conference which we did in 2017 in Prague uh, and uh, that conference uh, uh, featured uh, John Tronto as uh, as a keynote speaker. So that was the moment where I met with Joan and we discussed uh, her, uh, at that time, uh, quite recent book, Care, uh, uh, on a Caring Democracy. Uh, and uh, the, the title of that conference was Caring Democracy, Current Topics in the Political Theory of Care. Uh, and that was the uh, beginning of my beautiful collaboration with uh, Lizzie Ward uh, on that edited uh, collection that you mentioned. So that was the Care Ethics, Democratic Citizenship and the State. Uh, and uh, uh, that was my main uh, motivation then uh, to work on father topics and uh, some applied stuff that we will probably discuss later on. That's really interesting and interesting that Morris Hammington was your entry point. Yeah, yeah. So Morris is the professor of philosophy, um, I forget his full title, um, at Portland in Oregon. And um, he organized that conference where we, we met, that inaugural conference of the consortium. Yeah, exactly. I suppose, yeah, I suppose he was kind of entry point for me to care ethics as well. It was more mm -hmm. his, his writing about masculinity and um, his very personal account of caring for his daughter but it brought in that same sense of um embodiment and the influence of Melo ponty which i found really interesting and of course you know i, I was very interested as well and privileged to meet joan tronto as well mm -hmm. at that conference in um mm -hmm. in oregon and she's obviously been a huge influence on on feminist care ethics and particularly as you say on sort of political aspects of it this, this may be a difficult question. It sounds quite simple, um, but I think <laughs> some people listening to this, this might be the first term, time they've heard the term care ethics or the ethics of care, but it's become um, a huge area and particularly feminist care ethics, as you say. Is it possible to define what care ethics is in a few sentences? I found it very hard in writing about it to actually find a definition in the writers that we've, we've mentioned. Yeah. Have a go. So in, in, in general, uh, Martin, I'm quite skeptical about uh, definitions uh, of uh, uh, any important current in, in philosophy and moral, uh, moral thinking. Uh, so what I'm more um, um, sympathetic with is a kind of Wittgensteinian, let's say, approach. Uh, so to think uh, even about uh, currents in philosophy and moral uh, theory as uh, kind of sharing some family resemblances and uh, I would I would tend to say that care ethics to me at least in my understanding uh, is a kind of uh, umbrella term which which refers to the sort of a family of moral and political uh, theories and uh, these have some uh, core things in common and uh, uh, so in my uh, view the, the main thing is that there is this strong focus on caring as uh, a human practice uh, which is fundamental uh, to human condition and at the same time which uh, has historically uh, been marginalized and devalued uh, in the no uh, dominant western uh, political and moral philosophy uh, and so based on the analysis of this practice of, uh, of caring uh, so the uh, 
care ethics uh, comes to that idea of a transformative potential of care as both moral and political concept. Uh, so then uh, I would highlight uh, relationality. Uh, so there is this core idea of all these uh, philosophers and ethicists who are um, considered as care ethicists, uh, that the central uh, feature of human uh, condition is uh, interdependence, so that we are interdependent beings, and that uh, goes uh, hand in hand with uh, vulnerability. So the uh, acceptance of vulnerability as uh, something which is not uh, an issue in terms of uh, something that we should avoid, but something which is so fundamental that we need to think the human being uh, based on that. And that uh, comes together with uh, other um, other aspects such as uh, that participation, uh, solidarity are uh, our uh, core uh, core concepts uh, to think about what is maybe something like living well together uh, so that we are thinking about these uh, interdependent features and finally uh, so based on uh, on these relational uh, relational traits of human condition uh, so there is this focus on relational values and uh, ideals, let's say, uh, that are inherent in good caring. And I'm emphasizing good caring here. And to me, uh, what I found quite uh, um, as, a, as a kind of red line going through the writing of um, these uh, care theorists is that there is a focus on non-dominating supporting relationships, uh, focus on the values of attentiveness and responsivity, uh, and uh, maybe surprisingly to some people who are not familiar with the literature, uh, that uh, there is emphasis on justice and autonomy, um, but importantly, this is a relational justice and relational autonomy. So there is a kind of rethinking of the notion of justice and autonomy. But my reading of care ethics is that it's extremely uh, extremely important to see uh, the uh, the relationship between care and justice as mutually supportive and uh, actually a core relation for uh, any political thinking in terms of uh, care care ethics. That's interesting because um, obviously a lot of feminist care ethics arises out of the initial work of Carol Gilligan, who was a psychologist, and she makes that opposition, doesn't she, between justice, which is associated with a male or masculine way of relating right. to the world, and care and relationality, which is related to a more feminine way of working the world. But I think you're relating to the world, but I think you're saying that feminist care ethicists have kind of reevaluated that connection between justice and care. They're not, not opposed or separate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, I have to say that uh, I struggled with uh, the reading and interpretation of Carol Gilligan's work. Uh, and uh, in an introductory chapter that we wrote uh, with Lizzie Ward uh, for, for that edited collection, uh, so there is, a, there is a section that we devoted to what we think is the beginning of that uh, story of care ethics. And uh, we highlighted... Uh, 
the importance of Sarah Radic, uh, the, the, the American philosopher, uh, who actually published an important paper on maternal thinking two years before the publication of In a Different Voice uh, of Carol Gilligan. And I think that this paper of Sarah Radic uh, is, uh, is important also because it already at the beginning of the formulation of the first ideas of care ethics. So it has this political institutional dimension in it. And it also um, does not, um, it's, not, it's not that closely linked to that idea of um, a dyadic relationship between, let's say, mother and child, uh, though it, it uh, starts with maternal thinking as a practice that is uh, kind of um, uh, important one to reflect on. So Carol Gilligan, to me, uh, definitely is a uh, fundamental uh, writer and theorist in care ethics tradition. But at the same time, I think that unfortunately, uh, the work she uh, she's famous of mainly uh, includes these uh, unfortunate um, uh, binaries between justice and care and between male and female or feminine and masculine, let's say, moral thinking, uh, which uh, in, at the end, I would say that even if you read closely in a different voice, so you see all these passages where Carol Gilligan herself uh, already in 18, uh, 1982 was um, saying that these two approaches are complementary, that they are not excluding each other, and that we should be able to let them uh, do their work together. Uh, and I think that she moved in her own thinking later on to even more um, the idea of uh, kind of uh, uh, combining these two perspectives even more closely than, than at the beginning. Yeah, Interesting. And, and we'll, we'll certainly come back to this issue of gender and care, I'm sure, when we talk about Edelstein later. And also want to talk to you about your work on institutions and care um, later. So the political dimension will come back into our conversation. So you've mentioned a number of care ethicists. You've mentioned Morris Hamilton, Joan Tronto, Virginia Held, and just mentioned Sarah Ruddick. Are we leaving anybody out? Is there anybody else who's been influential, um, a key influence on your own thinking about care ethics that we haven't mm -hmm. talked about? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I could mention then uh, Angster's uh, work uh, on uh, the welfare state policies and care ethics. Uh, so that was very important to me as an example of uh, a very detailed work on uh, how the uh, particular uh, state policies might look like uh, when uh, we take uh, the political theory of care as uh, the point of departure in, in political theory. Uh, and Dan Angster is also an author who uh, published, uh, interestingly, on uh, public administration and uh, the uh, topic of uh, implementation of policy. So not just the content of policies, but also the way that uh, the state and government uh, is implementing policies. And that was very uh, influential to me in my thinking about institutions, as you mentioned. And uh, another colleague who uh, I worked uh, or collaborated in a way um, by sharing our ideas and uh, exchanging our papers is uh, Canadian political theorist uh, Sophie Bourgo uh, and especially her recent uh, work on the idea of caring bureaucracy, which uh, is this, this interesting um, approach which tries to show that uh, the 
uh, old ideal of uh, bureaucratic institution as uh, impartial and uh, promoting justice and fairness uh, is something which uh, is not against the, the ideals and values of care ethics, but uh, in the opposite, it is actually something which we should probably seek when we think of caring institutions in uh, current uh, situations so that we are really not uh, trying to go beyond uh, the fairness and impartiality of institutions but uh, um, try to uh, think how even these these central governmental agencies that are extremely hierarchical and bureaucratic sometimes so how they might uh, incorporate caring values and caring principles uh, in their practice. Interesting. I've tried to provide links in the show notes to this episode to some of the people we're talking about and some of the publications. So if we could take a dive into some aspects of your own writing on care ethics, Petter, and I said in my introduction that you've written in a few places, I think four papers you've published um, on the relationship between care ethics and inactivism. Um, so firstly, for the non-philosophers listening to this, among whom I include myself, can you explain what inactivism is and how you see the connection with care ethics? All right. Um, so first of all, my interest in uh, inactivism came from uh, the interest in uh, phenomenological philosophy, because inactivism um, was uh, formulated in 1980s uh, and developed later on as uh, a current in a philosophy of mind and philosophy of action, uh, which uh, which draws on uh, late uh, phenomenological philosophy, uh, but at the same time uh, it. Uh, usually presented as a naturalistic paradigm in philosophy. Uh, but they emphasize usually that it's a non-reductive naturalistic paradigm. Uh, so what is what, what's so interesting to me there is uh, that there is um, the, the, the core account of subjectivity uh, is relational. Uh, so it's relational in terms of uh, how we think of subject uh, as uh, interacting with environment and both physical and social environment. So, uh, with the social, uh, sorry, with the physical environment. So that's basically uh, our core ideas about uh, what is cognition and what is action. And and activists they emphasize that subject uh, or subjectivity or agent is always related to uh, environment and uh, to think action means to think this interaction with the environment. So there is this agent uh, within the interaction with the environment. And this is also um, the case uh, with the social environment. So that uh, if we uh, think the way that we relate to other people, uh, so it's not about uh, having the, the self and the subjectivity first and then think to think how does the subjectivity relate to uh, uh, the the others, uh, but it's from the very start uh, fundamentally always relation. Uh, so we are the self uh, which is in relation to others and any sense-making, which is uh, uh, the way that we uh, understand the world and we understand others is relational. So they talk about 
for example, participatory sense-making, uh, which is that uh, in the social realm, uh, any sense-making is uh, co-constituted. So it's, uh, it's done uh, together, so, uh, to say. And uh, why I was interested uh, in combining in activism and uh, care ethics, uh, that's uh, because they have this uh, striking... Um, convergence on their understanding of uh, of the relational subject. Mm. Uh, so that was my first point uh, where I thought, uh, wow, this is really interesting that no one uh, did research on uh, how these two traditions came to this uh, emphasis on the relational subjectivity. And uh, what I was uh, uh, what I was struggling with, and I never solved, I think, that issue uh, was there different views on uh, normativity, because the normativity in the inactivist um, framework, which is naturalistic, uh, is a normativity which comes from the interaction with the environment. And uh, whereas uh, normativity in care ethics comes from kind of idea of good caring. And uh, I remember wonderful uh, chats and discussions that I had with Virginia Held uh, in New York, where uh, I shared my drafts of these papers. And she was sort of disappointed because she uh, uh, wrote a paper, uh, I think at that time it was like 10 years before that, uh, which uh, argued for um, not the impossibility of combining uh, naturalistic uh, philosophy or naturalistic view of uh, the self uh, with care ethics. Uh, so we, we had a kind of disagreement about uh, the value of this, but uh, I remember that she was also very happy to see that there are these different currents of uh, thinking about the self uh, that are not related to care ethics originally, but they are very close to it. And uh, just to um, add on this, uh, so that um, the last five years I was quite surprised that uh, a lot of people um, uh, in philosophy and um, and uh, ethics uh, have been interested in this relation between uh, an activism and care ethics. And my colleague, uh, Geoffrey Dirksens, a Belgian philosopher who works with us in Prague, so he um, uh, prepared an, a special issue of Topoi, of the journal Topoi, which is devoted to uh, the moral and political dimension of an activism. Uh, and I was very pleased to see that people uh, were reading my previous work as a kind of pioneering, uh, pioneering idea uh, in uh, about this connection. So you started a trend, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I, when I read your papers, I, I mean, I obviously I'm not a philosopher, but I was struck by you. You picked, you highlighted that relational view of the human subject, and also embodiment as well as as yes. important to, yeah, to both yeah. both traditions. That was interesting. And I was also very interested to read the work that you've done um, with your colleague um, Alitza Kulvava on play, um, not least because it referenced the work of my former. Open University colleague, Professor Wendy Holway, who's been a key influence on my own thinking about care, particularly her book, The Capacity to Care, and also the writings of the psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott. So I wonder if you could say something about the connections you make in those papers between Winnicott's theory of play and the ethics of care. 
Yeah, so this uh, interest in, in Winnicott's uh, psychoanalysis and thinking is something which I owe to uh, my colleague, uh, Alice Kobova, which you uh, mentioned. And I um, was invited to um, think with her together about uh, what she found uh, so interesting in Winnicott's, which, uh, w w in Winnicott's thinking, which is this... Um, this uh, focus on play as uh, a fundamental transitional phenomenon, which is uh, crucial for a healthy development of human subjectivity. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Winnicott's emphasis on care and uh, facilitating environment, uh, which uh, he uh, conceptualizes in, in, this, in this idea of good enough, uh, good enough care, uh, which... Uh, is a necessary stage of the human of healthy human development. So we uh, we were wondering how these ideas, uh, how the Winnicott's ideas from the psychoanalytic perspective, uh, might uh, maybe match with some ideas in in care ethics. And uh, again, uh, obviously uh, there is uh, a lot of shared interest in the relational view of uh, subjectivity so that there is this famous Winnicottian idea uh, that if we analyze or if we uh, observe a baby so we always observe a baby interacting with uh, the uh, the caring person uh, and there is there is no such a such thing as uh, a baby in terms of uh, this uh, isolated uh, individual uh, but this was this was just the uh, the first um, um, thing to to observe in 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 uh, when comparing these two uh, worlds, sort of. Uh, but then we realize that with play, it's more complicating th uh, complicated than we thought at the beginning. Uh, so at least in care ethics, as far as I am aware, uh, there is no real research uh, so far uh, on play uh, and playing uh, as a phenomenon which would be closely connected to that caring uh, uh, practice, let's say. And I think that it's it's uh, something which, uh, where, where Winnicott is uh, offering care ethics uh, this uh, important observation uh, where uh, I would say that it would be very interesting for care ethicists to uh, focus more on how uh, play and playing uh, plays an important role in uh, both uh, these uh, intrapersonal relationships uh, that we are describing when we are describing caring practice within more uh, intimate relationships. But at the same time, and that's where uh, I find it even more interesting, uh, what is this political dimension of play and performance uh, in uh, Winnicott's thinking, uh, where Winnicott famously uh, does not consider play as a phenomenon which uh, is left somewhere in our childhood, but this is something which goes through what he calls cultural phenomena. So art, uh, art is uh, basically a play phenomenon uh, and all the artistic and cultural world offers uh, a similar experience of transitional phenomena for adult uh, human beings. And I think that this interest in art and play uh, is simply missing uh, in uh, the mainstream uh, care ethics literature. And I would love to see more research on that. Uh, and second, um, there is uh, 
there is another line where, uh, on the other hand, those people who are developing uh, Vinicotian psychoanalytical theories, uh, so I think that they might benefit from some ideas from care ethics, which is uh, especially uh, this, the, the emphasis on political dimension and the emphasis on uh, the political structures and institutions, uh, where we found that Vinicot's own political thinking, his uh, paper on democracy, uh, is in a way very naive uh, attempt to uh, say something about uh democracy and uh, the political from the perspective of what was his psychoanalytical theory. Uh, so I think that uh, if you read his own political writing, so it's it's not, uh, it's really not convincing, but there is a big potential uh, in Vinicult's account of subjectivity and uh, healthy human development, uh, which we believe uh, can be used in political theory. Uh, so where uh, maybe political theory of care and Vinicott's thinking might uh, might be mutually uh, inspiring. And that's uh, also why we um, did a paper uh, which uh, is focusing on this political uh, potential of Vinicott's thinking and comparing it with uh, Martin Nussbaum's way uh, of using Vinicott, uh, where we believe that Martin Nussbaum is uh, uh, using Vinicott for the purpose of her own project in political theory and uh, that she's missing some interesting ideas about aggression and uh, about play in Vinicott. Uh, so that's our uh, most recent uh, um, common project with Alisa Kobova on that. Thank you. And yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting the commonality you identified in terms of the emphasis on vulnerability and dependence, but also it's really interesting that Winnicott writes about interplay between connection and separateness in play, which I hadn't really sort of thought about before. So that was really interesting. But maybe sticking with that political point that you ended on, I noticed that you're most, in your most recent chapter on play, you argue that play matters for democracy. So you broaden the scope to the political realm. Can you say a bit more about why play matters for democracy? It's not so, They're not two concepts that people would normally bring together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah, um, so this this uh, chapter that you mentioned is part of uh, an edited uh, collection that we um, put together with uh, Alice Kubova and with uh, two other uh, co-editors, uh, English colleagues, and um, it it's based on a conference that we uh, had in Prague in 2019, which was called uh, Play and Democracy. And uh, to me, this was also a new uh, area. So I was uh, really happy to uh, participate in that conference and uh, to listen to all these different approaches, uh, tackling uh, the question of how play and uh, democracy relate. Uh, and uh, I think that there are, so it's, it's, it's good to distinguish several different uh, dimensions of this uh, thinking about democracy and play. Uh, so first, uh, there is this big, um, field of uh, thinking about uh, performative action and uh, democracy so that we we can think of social movements for example and um, <coughs> demonstrations the way uh, the ways that people um, prepare their protests and uh, the way that uh, people go to the uh, industry to to demonstrate their 
uh, ideas. So, so this is a kind of theater. This is a kind of performance uh, which is done in a playful way. And it has a very important role, the, the way that it's done. Uh, so it's not, it's not a kind of serious way of writing a manifesto and going to uh, the minister or the prime minister, but it's a way of doing a performance. And this performative aspect uh, is part of the transform transformative uh, potential of, of that event. And then you have, for example, um, the domain of uh, play uh, as a tool for education. Uh, so in education of, of children and youth, uh, there is uh, yeah, the awareness of the role of playing within education is, uh, is out there for long. But at the same time, there are different approaches. So you can have play as a sort of instrument so that you say, yeah, we need to teach kids something. Uh, so let's do it in a playful way. But then you are instrumentalizing play. Or you can you can go in a different direction, which is let's uh, let's let uh, the uh, kids uh, play as uh, as they want, as they like, and let's observe what the creativity and what the um, free spontaneous activity of kids will create, uh, and let's base education maybe on some of these aspects where we are leaving space and room for. Uh, kids and youth to uh, to have this creative, spontaneous uh, moments of interaction, uh, and I think that this is something which then uh, you can cultivate that uh, by uh, using some artistic uh, artistic methods. Uh, so uh, that's that that's where it touches another dimension, and that's art. So the role of uh, the art uh, for democracy and. Again, interestingly, there are different uh, layers of that. Uh, we know the cases where the art was serving uh, some systems and regimes that were uh, definitely non-democratic. Uh, so where the art was used for propaganda. Uh, so there is the question, so how is it possible that art is you know, doing uh, this work of being misused for propaganda? But at the same time, you have artists that are uh, opening minds of people and uh, facilitating this type of open-mindedness and uh, democratic thinking, democratic mentality. So uh, this is where Alice Kobowa was focusing a lot on uh, what what are the conditions for this non-abusive way of uh, using art uh, in democracy. Uh, and uh, she there also created a link between uh, the Vinicotian views of play, so that there are some uh, characterizations that must be uh, fulfilled. Uh, um, otherwise, the, the art can go into uh, that uh, instrument being used by the system uh, as a propaganda uh, thing. Really interesting, thank you. And yeah, pioneering area, I think. And I think what you said earlier about the scope for research, bringing together art and creativity and the ethics of care is right. There is there is a gap there, isn't there, in the research? And it'll be interesting to see that sort of relationship being developed further. Mm -hmm. Just Just sticking with the idea of the political dimension of care. And I mentioned in my introduction that you gave a um, presentation at that conference in Portland um, on caring institutions, and you've contributed a chapter um, on organising the caring society toward a care ethical perspective on institutions to the book I mentioned earlier on care ethics, 
democratic citizenship and the state. So what role do you think institutions have to play in a caring society? And can we speak, can we really speak about caring institutions? Can institutions care? <laughs> okay, uh, difficult questions. <laughs> so, so the first one is uh, perhaps l less difficult, uh, which is uh, the question whether um, um, there isn't any important role for institutions to play in a uh, caring society. Uh, so <clears throat> I would argue, yes, uh, of course. And uh, this is uh, something uh, that, that's, that's a consequence of uh, uh, the thinking in line of care as a political concept. Uh, so once we uh, take it seriously uh, that care is a political concept and when we seriously start of thinking about uh, what uh, transformation or uh, change of our structures, meaning social and political structures, is needed to, to get closer to the ideal of uh, care being central uh, value uh, in our uh, polities and in our societies, uh, so uh, you can't you can't avoid uh, thinking about transformation of institutions. So there always will be institutions that are uh, helping to organize um, uh, these big societal entities that we live in, and uh, also the global society is uh, sort of institutionalized nowadays. Uh, so we have def different levels of institutions going from the regional up to uh, these. Um, supra-national uh, institutions. Uh, so uh, it's important, I think, from the Catholic perspective to really think about um, what change is needed and uh, what change is also realistic. So, so, in, uh, so that there are some big ideals in the political theory of care sometimes, which uh, the critics uh, can easily say, uh, okay, so these are nice thoughts, uh, but how how do you want to to achieve that in uh, in the real life? And I think that this is exactly about uh, thinking uh, of institutions as um, the place that we uh, need to uh, incorporate uh, the impulses from political theory of care and start changing situation. And that uh, the second question, so whether it's possible, uh, whether whether institutions can, can care so whether that, that's a kind of maybe uh, contradiction uh, in in that idea. Uh, so in in the chapter that I wrote um, on on this topic, I uh, I provided a quite detailed reading of Nell Nodding's uh, work uh, because Nell Nodding's is sometimes read as the author which offered uh, a very uh, narrow view of care ethics uh, based on uh, her reflection on, on the relationship between caring and cared for person and uh, it's a, this dietic relationship. Uh, uh, it can be mother and child or it can be a teacher and student, but it's always the two of them. Uh, and uh, based on this uh, very narrow view, it would be really difficult to uh, think of something like caring institutions. So how would you have something like an institution uh, 
uh, being in the role of the caring uh, sort of person uh, related to one uh, one other person. Uh, but uh, Nell Noddings in her more recent writing uh, makes an important uh, distinction between caring about and caring for. And uh, she claims that uh, what this dyadic uh, caring is uh, is this caring for uh, and this is something according to noddings which care which institutions cannot do uh, but then there is caring about uh, and that's the way that institutions are for example attentive to uh, the needs of citizens or that they are responsive so that they um, uh, prepare their policies in the way that uh, it's responding to the needs of populations and uh, and um, citizens and she claims that this is uh, the type of caring which institutions can do uh, but in my own argument in that chapter uh, i was trying to show that uh, caring institutions is definitely not a contradiction uh, and uh, that we uh, can think of uh, institutions having some qualities uh, that are uh, related to these core values of, of care ethics, uh, so attentiveness, responsivity, uh, etc. And uh, this is the way that I believe we can think of even the bureaucratic uh, governmental institutions and as being open to transformation in a caring way so that we can have more caring or less caring uh, in bureaucratic institutions. And I believe that it makes sense. And I try to show in detail uh, how uh, this would uh, even be possible in the real life. So, for example, based on uh, some uh, ideas uh, in organizational culture and organizational structure so that you, you can promote uh, by uh, hiring uh, hiring uh, public uh, officials uh, that are uh, even educated uh, to particular listening skills or uh, dialogical communicative skills uh, or when you promote public officials so then uh, you you look at the qualities of that person so is the person able to be the ethical leader and that ethical leadership in the context of care ethics is always r relational leadership so do, do we have a person who is a real ethical relational uh, leader do we want to promote that person to lead a bigger unit for example yeah interesting thank you that's a really helpful explanation so i do want to spend a bit of time talking about your writings on Edith stein um which is what alerted me to your work in the first place so i know you've written a number of papers um on her work <clears throat> so just to begin with though for those who are unfamiliar with stein uh, she was a German-Jewish philosopher, student and associate of Edmund Husserl, the founder of phenomenology, who you mentioned earlier. And following her conversion to Catholicism, she became a Carmelite nun and was murdered by the Nazis at Auschwitz. So, firstly, Petra, I wanted to ask you about the origins of your interest in Edith Stein. Was it, did it arise from your PhD work on Husserl? And you mentioned empathy earlier. Obviously, she, her PhD was on empathy or Ein Fulung. So I'm guessing maybe that was how your interest in her work arose. Yeah, you're you're right. <laughs> uh, so my interest in phenomenology of intersubjectivity uh, was um, uh, connected to this uh, reading and um, interpreting of uh, early Edith Stein's uh, phenomenological work. 
And uh, it was exactly her uh, PhD thesis on uh, the problem of empathy, uh, which I was interested in uh, in particular. And uh, on the top of that, uh, I was invited uh, to uh, translate uh, that book from German to Czech. So it was the first uh, translation of uh, really? on the problem of uh, empathy yeah, into Czech. Uh, and uh, then I realized uh, that she's... Uh, she has uh, other aspects that are very in, uh, very interesting to uh, uh, from my perspective and that was that uh, she especially like in later 1920s and then early 1930s uh, she was involved in uh, the german movement uh, in um, like social and political movement, uh, which uh, had the feminist backgrounds, basically. So it was about um, the rights of women, and it was about uh, the work conditions uh, of women. And Edith Stein was uh, very active, uh, also socially, politically. So she uh, lectured across the German across Germany, um, and she talked to um, audiences, non-academic audiences, about these topics. And one of her her core uh, questions was the question uh, of uh, woman. So what does it mean to be a uh, woman? And uh, uh, what are maybe the specific uh, values and uh, uh, some uh, specific uh, possibilities of uh, leading the life uh, of, uh, of a woman of that time? And I found this extremely interesting because... I think that Stein was, um, she was she was proposing something which I tend to call a feminist personalism. So she's a personalist philosopher. Pers human person is uh, the utmost value in, in her thinking of that time. Uh, and uh, it was common in that um, environment of early phenomenologists. Uh, but at the same time, she's the only uh, of that group who added this uh, feminist uh, dimension to it. And uh, she was proposing a really interesting uh, account of um, feminine values uh, that are uh, something which was, uh, and similarly to what uh, care ethicists say, so something which was marginalized, devalued, uh, so the values of love and the values of uh, mutual support, uh, care, caring, and that these values, according to Stein of that time, are something that uh, should be uh, um, inserted in uh, the modern society so that the modern society is lacking uh, the values that are present and inherent in these uh, female practices and and of course as you can feel from what I'm saying already uh, so there is um, uh, there is this aspect which uh, was criticized a lot heavily uh, with respect to Edith Stein uh, that Stein is uh, proposing uh, essentialism mm -hmm. uh, when when we think of gender, so that she she thinks of uh, a, a female essence uh, as opposed to uh, to masculine uh, or feminine essence as opposed to masculine essence, and she uh, indeed um, proposed something like a dual ontology of uh, or anthropology uh, of uh, the human essence being expressed in two different. Uh, typically two different ways, and this is the feminine and the masculine one. And uh, 
this is where I believe that Evenstein's work uh, allows a slightly uh, more constructive uh, interpretation, not necessarily um, categorizing her as essentialist um, uh, in terms of gender. Uh, and I um, took a lot of inspiration here from uh, Finnish uh, phenomenologist Sarah uh, Heinema. Uh, she, uh, she also reads Stein, but she uh, does that uh, like something which is on the mar uh, margin of uh, her work. Uh, but, but the discussion between constructivism and essentialism in uh, feminist literature. Uh, so some is something which uh, Sarah Heinema says couldn't be uh, dealt with from 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 a third perspective, and that might be thinking of a sexual identity or gender identity uh, in terms of a personal style or something like. Uh, uh, in the phenomenological point of view, so that would be the way uh, of practices and the way of uh, uh, some uh, core values that are inherited in these practices and something which is like a constant style of living. And uh, here I would say that, that this, this is a clue how to maybe read Stein also uh, as proposing this dual anthropology in a non-essentialist way and I think that this would be compatible with uh, care ethics in a way because uh, this feminist aspect uh, to, to go beyond the feminine values and to talk about care as something which is not related to uh, experience of uh, women uh, so this is something which I would say we can find in Stein too, so that she she is uh, really talking about uh, these uh, practices and values as open to being practiced by anybody. So you can you can have uh, men uh, practicing and promoting the values of love, attentiveness, and and empathy and care. Uh, but at the same time, she says. Like that's why women are so valuable uh, also in our society. And uh, I think that this was anticipation of the second wave of feminism. So revaluing uh, the, the uniqueness and particularity of um, or this pe peculiarity of uh, female experience as something which is uh, now considered as a, a positive um, value and positive thing. You've anticipated my next question, Peter, which was going to be about the critique of uh, or the criticism of Edith Stein is that she is an essentialist. And um, I think I think it's possible to read her work superficially, her essays mm. on women, and to think that she's saying that um, all she's saying is that women are, because of female embodiment, are physically and psychologically built for care, whereas men are built for more instrumental ways of relating to the world. Um, but I think the way that you've explained it and, um, you know, thank you in the past for introducing me to the work of Syrah Heinemar, I think is, you know, I'd recommend her book on um, Simone de Beauvoir and Merleau-Ponty and sexual difference, really interesting. I find it quite challenging to get my head around that idea, but I think it's, it's I think you're right, it's useful to get away from that superficial reading of Edith Stein as a, a gender essentialist, really. Um, so, so thank you for that. So, so more broadly, what what do you think is her her value for? I'm leaving aside the sort of the gender issue. Her value, or what contribution can her philosophy make to 
feminist or care ethics more generally, do you think? Mm, mm. Is it about empathy? Is it something about that writing on empathy, do you think? Yeah. So um, I would say that um, mainly uh, her um, detailed phenomenal phenomenological uh, analysis of, of empathy is uh, is um, one thing which is valuable. So that's uh, uh, for uh, phenomenologists there is uh, this imperative of providing a very detailed description of uh, the phenomenon and of uh, the uh, the practice uh, that we have in mind uh, so here i think that still um, the 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 entire phenomenological tradition with uh, the, the analyses of uh, sub, uh, of intersubjectivity and society so, sociality uh, is uh, still quite relevant and offers uh, sometimes much more nuanced uh, insights into uh, how. Uh, we are uh, related to each other and uh, what is what is the uh, uh, what are the aspects different aspects of uh, so sociality and social life so i think that 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 might be something where it's still very relevant but at the same time uh, i think that there are at least uh, some care ethicists who might find uh, Edith Stein's religious background and uh, her, especially the late Stein's um, uh, work in theology. So, uh, so that, that's where, you know, we, we are entering into the domain which, uh, at least in care ethics and political theory of care so far, is, I would say, rather underdeveloped. So maybe there was even a very critical stance to something like connecting uh, care ethics to any type of uh, religious uh, experience and religious frameworks. Uh, but I think that it's changing. And I know that uh, there are some interesting books now uh, on, on, on the religious experience and care ethics. Uh, so here I think that Stein uh, is a, a philosopher uh, who did this um, uh, connection and worked on this connection between uh, the religious life um, and spirituality and uh, care uh, as as the value of uh, social and political life. Uh, so I think that maybe returning to these uh, aspects of her writing is uh, which would be still beyond what I did uh, when I uh, showed the connection. Uh, so that might be very interesting and. Uh, and the fact that uh, Stein is uh, even trying to to uh, to, make, to to remain a philosopher and uh, going into this theological work, so she she wrote several books in her latest uh, stages of her development, uh, which were uh, on uh, theological topics from a philosophical theological perspective. So here again, I think that uh, at least to some care ethicists this might uh, be some inspiration and maybe a good point of departure when they try to do similar work. Yes, I, I agree. And that, that gives me the opportunity to plug the book that I was happy to contribute to on care ethics, religion and spiritual traditions, which um, yeah. Morris Harrington was also involved in as well yeah, as one yeah. of the editors. So, okay, I, th I think we've almost come to the end of our conversation. You'll be pleased to hear, Petter. Um, just a final question. I mentioned at the beginning, you've recently published your co-written co book with Dan Swain. So what are you planning to work on next? What is there going to be more research and writing on 
care from you? <laughs> yeah, so there is one uh, chapter draft uh, currently on my table, on my desk, and that's uh, uh, again uh, on care ethics and public administration uh, for a handbook uh Uh, Bloomsbury Handbook on Care Ethics, uh, which is uh, edited by Matilda uh, Carter uh, from Glasgow. And in this chapter, I uh, was quite happy to uh, go in more detail into uh, some under-researched uh, uh, domains of uh, care ethics and public administration, uh, namely Uh, looking at uh, the di digitalized public administration and currently all these issues around uh, the use of uh, artificial intelligence uh, in public administration uh, and uh, you know how to reflect on that from care ethics uh, perspective uh, and then uh, i was also uh, interested in um, the topic of crisis management and uh, management for or governance for sustainability. So the, the, the dimension of an environmental governance uh, within public administration nowadays and uh, the crisis management as we have witnessed uh, that uh, uh, with the pandemic and, uh, and actually all the ongoing um, sad crises that we are, uh, we are having. Uh, so that's that's something which will hopefully be published uh, by the end of this year, uh, and I'm planning uh, to uh, publish again together with uh, Dan Swain um, something which will be a Czech uh, version of this book on social cohesion. But this will include uh, some new chapters on the Czech context, which we did not include in uh, the the thing which was published with uh, Roman and Littlefield. And uh, we, Dan Swain, Dan Swain and I, uh, we also work on um, the topic of uh, socio-political acrasia, uh, which which is a technical term, but acrasia, as you may know, uh, that's the uh, the issue of uh, be, uh, behaving um, behaving um, uh, against uh, our better beliefs, so that we. Uh, we have all the knowledge necessary for good moral action and we are not uh, uh, acting accordingly uh, and uh, in the in tradition there was a um, strong account of individual acrasia so when this happens with uh, the human individual agent so uh, you know how it uh, how is it possible how to explain that and we think that there is there is something like Uh, acratic action, acratic acting on the, the social and political level too. So, for example, we uh, we conceptualize uh, the uh, action of uh, governments uh, in the context of climate crisis, so that uh, the governments are uh, committing themselves to uh, particular uh, agreements, international agreements, and they profess the values of uh, pro-climate action. And then you see the reality, which is the real life action of these governments. So sometimes they uh, really uh, act uh, against these uh, these professed beliefs. And uh, so what we try to offer is an account of socio-political acrasia. Um, and uh, the last thing that I would like to mention is that Elitza Kobova 
myself and Gal Gerson uh, from Israel, uh, we are preparing a special issue of uh, the journal Psychoanalysis, Culture and Society, uh, and that will be on uh, Donald Venicott and political theory. Uh, Elitza and I, we uh, have this paper on Marta Nussbaum's uh, misuse, as we call it, of Winnicott there. And there are some wonderful scholars with us. Uh, so Frederick Worms, for example, the French uh, philosopher and care theorist uh, and other great uh, scholars. Uh, so that's something which uh, hopefully will be also completed by the end of this year. Thank you. I should look forward to those publications with interest. The ones in English, anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reading your Czech publications. So I'd like to conclude them, Petr, by thanking you really, thank you very, really warmly for this really interesting conversation. Um, it's given me a much deeper insight into your work and your ideas about care and care ethics. So just want to wish you all the best for your future work and um, let's keep in touch. Thank you uh, again for inviting me and uh, it was a real pleasure. Uh, thank you. Okay, so that's all we have time for on this episode of Careful Thinking. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to send feedback about this episode or suggest a guest or a topic for a future episode, you can email the podcast at carefulthinkingpodcast at gmail.com. And now there's a new way of interacting with the podcast. I've recently launched a Substack where I link to the podcast and discuss individual episodes. And you can leave your own comments and thoughts there too. You can find that at carefulthinking.substack.com. See you next time. <laughs>